If you've got a Bible, you can grab it, or you can snag one from the back over there. Go ahead and um, open up to Exodus chapter 12. That's where we're going to spend the bulk of our time, but if you... If you've got a bookmark or something, or you just want to put your, your finger in there, we're actually going to take a little bit of a running start into that passage, but Exodus 12 is going to be our main text for this morning. Um, there's, a, there's a scene in Remember the Titans uh, that is particularly poignant. Um, if you've seen the movie Remember the Titans, you know that it is the story of T.C. Williams High School. Uh, And it is a microcosm there in the high school, particularly within the high school football team, of the larger social, racial context that the movie takes place in, which is at this high school, they're integrating uh, an African-American high school and a white high school into one. And the town is very split and divided over that. And that begins to play itself out in the context of the football team. And Denzel Washington is brought in to... Uh, be the coach of that team, plays the character that's the coach of that team, and he begins to try to sort out and navigate through the tensions that exist within this football team. And so early in the movie, they go off to their uh, summer training, their camp, and they're practicing two, three times a day, and things aren't getting any better relationally within the team. And so finally he wakes the team up. I think it's you would call it late at night. It's not even qualifies as early morning yet. He wakes them up very late, uh, and they begin to go on a run uh, out away from the campus that they're staying at, the camp they're at, through the woods, and they run until the sun is coming up the next morning, and there's like this light layer of fog there, and it's this incredible scene where he stops them in the middle of a field, kind of clearing in some trees, and he begins to talk to them that the place where they're standing is the field of Gettysburg. And that on that field, years ago, men from this country had fought and given their lives so that the kind of racial tension and difficulty that exists on their team would begin to disappear and that we've come this far and yet this is where we are still in life. And it's early in the movie, but it sets the stage or kind of sets the table for what's to come later. And that's one of the marks of a, great, uh, of a great story of an engaging movie or real life story is that there are these scenes that take place throughout and they have meaning in and of themselves and they're captivating and compelling by themselves, but they're leading to something greater. Typically when I get up here and give a movie illustration, I ruin the ending for you, which I'm not going to do today. But that scene in the woods at Gettysburg sets the stage for what happens in that football team, in that town over the course of that season, and for the rest of the movie, and for the rest of the real-life story that that depicts. It lays the foundation for that. That from that point forward, things begin to change, and things are a little bit different. Where we are in our reading right now, and where we are this weekend, is that we have been setting the stage, setting the table, for what is the Old Testament's most powerful and potent display of both the power of the Lord and the shadow of salvation that would come through Jesus Christ. And that plays itself out in the story of the Exodus. Not just the book of Exodus, but the actual story of the Exodus, of the Israelite people leaving their slavery in Egypt. And so over the last few weeks, we've been kind of slow playing up to this moment, if you will. Two weeks ago, we looked at the story of Joseph 
and we saw that the Lord is present in your circumstances. Joseph is the individual that the Lord uses to move the Israelites from uh, getting kind of a sneak peek of their promised land, moving them into the land of Egypt where they end up in slavery. But Joseph's life is one of extreme highs and extreme lows. And we see that the Lord is present in the midst of those. No matter how great the triumph, the Lord is present there. No matter how deep the trial, the Lord is present there. And his presence isn't passive. I think that's important. I don't know that I made that particularly clear. His presence is active in the midst of that. God isn't just standing by, presently kind of nodding his assent to the things that are going on in Joseph's life or in the world. He's present and active in our circumstances and in the things that play out throughout his creation. Then we looked at Moses last week, and T.A. did a really good job of walking us through Moses' calling. The first six chapters or five chapters of the book of Exodus. You see, what we saw there is that the Lord is personal in relationship. We're told that the Lord sees and hears and knows and remembers and that he delivers. Those are relationship words. To hear someone, to see someone, to know someone and remember them. The Lord is personal in relationship. And T.A. did such a great job of laying for us uh, the foundation of God giving us his name and portraying himself as Yahweh, I am who I am. And what is incredibly uh, powerful for me as I was reading in our reading this week is that before the Lord gives Moses his name, before the Lord says, I am who I am, he calls Moses by name twice. The Lord is personal in relationship. And before Moses knew the Lord's name in that sort of way, the Lord knew Moses. And the same is true for us. You may be here this morning and not be in a personal relationship with the Lord, but that does not mean that the Lord does not know you intimately and can call you by name. And then today, we're going to arrive and see that the Lord is powerful to save. And we're going to see that in the story of the Exodus. God is the only thing that is powerful to save, and he wants all of his creation to know it. And so I want to begin our our run-up to Exodus chapter 12 by reading in Exodus 6. So if you're at chapter 12 and you want to flip back a couple pages, or you're on your phone and you want to click yourself into a different chapter, Exodus 6, beginning in verse 6, says this, The Lord says to Moses, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from the burdens of Egypt. God is going to make it clear to everyone, the Egyptians, the Israelites, to everyone who's read this story since then, that he's not only present, that he not only controls the circumstances of the world, that he's not only personal and sees and hears and knows the people he has created, but that he alone is powerful to save. And I want to I want to give you this warning right from the beginning. The takeaway today the application of today's text is less about go and do these three things or here are two things or or four things that you can take into your life. The application is simple today. And the application is simple all week while you read this story, and it's this, that we should be in awe. 
and just wonderstruck by the power of the Lord to save. When we read this account, that's what we should come back to over and over and over again. And in order to walk our way into that, we need to take a little history tour. And so I know that at 11.50 on a Sunday morning, history class isn't what you were hoping for, but I promise that there's a payoff. And I wouldn't do this if it, if it wasn't beneficial for us. And so uh, we got to take a moderately deep dive into Egyptian mythology and religion for a second. I promise to go quickly. But what happens is that God begins to save the Israelite people via a series of ten plagues. And those ten plagues, while certainly being an incredible depiction of the Lord's power over his creation, are also a direct attack on the false lowercase g gods that the Egyptians worship. And he takes them head on, one at a time. And so I just want to walk through the ten plagues and show you how this plays out. The first plague is that the Nile turns to blood. The Egyptian goddess or spirit of the Nile was named Hapi. You see, the Nile was considered the life source of Egypt. Its annual flooding during the rainy season was crucial for crop growth. If there was a good flood, there would be good crops. If there was a bad flood, there would be bad crops. If there was a great flood, there would be great crops. If there was no flood, no crops. The, Israel, or the Egyptian people looked at the Nile as their source of life. In Hopi, they would pray to and offer sacrifices to in order to try to ensure that the flood would be good. And then God turns that river to blood and says, you think this river and that God are your source of life? I control that river and I am the source of life in all of the world, including here in Egypt, not that river. The second plague is a plague of frogs. Egyptian goddess of fertility was named Hecate. She was represented by a frog. Let me read to you how the plague, of fro- the plague of frogs happens. God says this in Exodus 8, 3 and 4. He says, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the house of your servants and your people and into your ovens and into your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants. I mentioned this when we talked about the story of Noah. Don't fall victim to reading this story and picturing it in cartoon form where there are like nine or ten smiling green frogs hopping around the Egyptian countryside. That is not what happened here. There were frogs everywhere. You wanted to go to bed? Brush 34 frogs off of your bed so that you can lay down. You wake up in the morning and you need to start making food for your family. Clear 13 frogs out of your oven so that you're not eating frog plus whatever you thought you were making for dinner. The text tells us that when the plague was over and the frogs died, the Egyptians just had to gather them together into heaping piles and burn them because there were so many of them, there was nowhere for them to go. It's as if the Lord says, you've got an Egyptian god of fertility that's represented by a frog. I'll show you fertile frogs. I'll give you so many frogs, you don't know what to do with them. And Hecate won't be able to take them away. But when I decide that it's time for them to be gone, they will be gone. The third plague is a plague of gnats. 
the Egyptian god of the earth was named Geb. You see, the third plague comes about when Moses takes the staff that the Lord has given to him, and he's supposed to plant it into the ground, and the dust that flies up in that moment is going to represent the dust coming up in all of Egypt, and that dust turning into gnats, and there are going to be gnats everywhere, similar to the frogs. The gnats would have covered your house. They would have covered the stuff in your house. The gnats would have covered your children and you. And that dust that turned into the gnats was as if Geb had rebelled against you and the God of the land had decided that it was time to turn itself into bugs that would just be everywhere. I hate bugs. I hate them. It would have felt like Geb has just turned against us. And it doesn't matter if we go and offer a sacrifice at his temple or if we sit and pray to him. These bugs aren't going anywhere. But as soon as the Lord decides the bugs are gone, the bugs are gone. In fact, this is the way the Egyptians describe the third plague. They say, this is the finger of God. Capital G, God. Not lowercase. They begin to see and to understand that something is happening here. The fourth plague is a plague of flies. The Egyptian god Kepri was represented by a fly. And we're told that throughout all of Egypt, the land was ruined by flies. But the fourth plague is the first plague where the Lord begins to differentiate between the people of Egypt and his people, the Israelites, in the land of Goshen. And there are no flies in Goshen. I've always wondered how this worked in airspace. Was there like a wall And there are like swarms of flies everywhere that are just like bumping into something and can't get into the land of Goshen. Or how does it happen? But the Lord starts to differentiate between his people and the Egyptian people. The fifth plague is a plague on all of the livestock and cattle or sheep or whatever the case might be out in the field fall over dead one day. There was an Egyptian god of creation named Ptah. And there was a bull that was venerated to the place of being worshipped named Apis. And while looking out into their fields and seeing their livestock dead in the field, they would have thought to themselves, where is the God of creation? All I see is death. Or where is this bull that we have been worshiping? How come he couldn't protect our cattle? Where are they to save us? The answer is nowhere. They don't exist. The sixth plague is a plague of boils. The god Sekhmet was the god of epidemics. He could create them or he could stop them. Isis was the god of medicine and healing and peace. And yet while the people of Egypt are given boils all over their body and the pain that's associated with that, it would have felt like maybe Sekhmet has turned against us or where is Isis in order to heal us? How come they're not stopping or bringing relief? And yet when Yahweh decides that plague is over, those boils are gone. He's powerful. Seventh plague is a plague of hail. The Egyptian sky god was named Newt. And his hail begins to fall from the sky and destroy everything in its path. It would have felt like Newt himself has turned against us and he is throwing his judgment down upon us. If only we could offer a sacrifice or get him to change his mind, he will stop. But that's not the case. When the Lord decides it's over, it's over. And what's left out in the fields and in their countryside after the hail has ended is totally consumed in the eighth plague, which is a plague of locusts. The god of the grain was named Nepri. The god of crops was 
named Seth. And the Egyptian people would have stood by and watched while what was remaining after the hail was completely consumed. What food was left in the field is gone. And plague number nine is a plague of darkness. Ra was the Egyptian sun god. They saw the rising and the setting of the sun as a testament to Ra's faithfulness and goodness to them. And then for three days, the sun is gone. And what they're left with is what we're told is a darkness that could be felt. It's not just black outside. Have you ever been into a place where there's literally no light and you can't see your hand this close in front of your face and it feels like the room is kind of closing in on you and you don't know where anything is? That's taking place in the entire country of Egypt, except for in the land of Goshen, where there is light. And the very people who do nothing to worship a God who makes the sun rise in the morning, a false God named Ra, have light every day when they're supposed to, because Yahweh provides it. And then the final plague is a plague on the firstborns. And all throughout Egypt, the firstborn child or the firstborn of The animals are struck down, and it's an attack on Pharaoh himself, as if to say, none of those gods could save you, and Pharaoh cannot save you. He can't save himself. He can't save his own family. He can't save you or your family. And it leaves the question, by the time you arrive at the end of Exodus chapter 11, would, would the Egyptians have known? Would they have watched all of this play out and say to themselves, oh my gosh, our gods are under attack? I don't know if they would have lined up all ten of these in the appropriate place. But they definitely would have seen the full weight of them and said to themselves, the things we have been worshiping can do nothing for us. The message at this point should have been clear. It should have been clear to Pharaoh. It should have been clear to the Egyptian people. It should have been clear to the Israelites, it should be clear to us reading today that the Lord controls the events of the universe in order to bring himself glory. It's as if all of these things are playing out and God is standing to the side just screaming, I am and those things are not. I am powerful and those are not. I will save and those cannot. I will redeem my people, and those things will not. I will save humanity, and nothing else can. And so what he said he would do in Genesis chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, he does. You see, the Lord is powerful to save. And he begins that process with the Israelite people in the land of Goshen. And so in Exodus chapter 12, I just want us to walk through these verses. Here's how the Lord saves his people. And one of the primary takeaways here is that the Lord dictates the terms of salvation. And in Exodus chapter 12, he's very specific about what that should look like and how it should function. If you were at our Passion service, our Good Friday service last year. You heard me walk through this, but it's worth doing again. I'm going to start in verse 3. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what 
Each can eat. You shall make your count for the lamb. The lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month. Step number one, go get a lamb. But don't just go get any lamb. Go get a male. It can be from the sheep or the goats. That's exactly a year old. And that has no blemish anywhere on it. And then take that lamb into your home. Bring it to you. If you are a parent and you've, got, um, you've ever brought a pet into your house, a puppy or a kitten or a goldfish or a gerbil, you know that it takes about four and a half seconds for your children to be completely attached to said puppy or kitten or fish or gerbil. And so four days of bringing the lamb inside the house. You know what's happened after four days of having the lamb inside the house? You've given the lamb a name. Not you, but your children have. And Pickles the lamb has become the family's favorite thing. And maybe you're sharing Pickles the Lamb with the neighbors. And there's arguments that take place in the evening over who gets to sleep with Pickles the Lamb that night. And he's giving rides around the house to your children. And for four days, you keep that perfect, spotless, unblemished lamb with you. You shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, and then, and then this. When the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the house in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Specific instructions. At twilight on the 14th day, Pickles and all of his one-year-old friends are slaughtered. There's got to be an explanation in the house about why Pickles is gone. And then you took the blood of that lamb and you, you put it on your doorposts and on the lintel of your home. And then there was a specific way you were supposed to cook that. You weren't supposed to boil it. You needed to roast it. And you had to eat everything. And anything that you didn't eat, you had to burn before the morning. And there was also a specific way that you were supposed to be clothed when you ate it. That you were supposed to have your belt on and your robe tucked in there. And you needed to have your sandals on. Because once we eat this, we're getting out of Egypt. It's time to go. This is the Lord's Passover. And here's how that's going to play out. Verse 12. For I, the Lord will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both men and beasts, and on the gods of Egypt, on the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment, for I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. God is going to 
do exactly what he said he was going to do. He's going to move through the land of Egypt, and the firstborn of everything is going to be struck down. But where there's the blood of a one-year-old unblemished lamb on the doorpost and on the lintel, he is going to pass over those homes. And then in verses 14 through 20, he gives them a ceremony, a, a celebration, a feast of unleavened bread that he wants them to carry out every year from this point forward. That in the same way that here in the middle of the night, they're going to have to just grab their stuff and go, and the bread's not going to have time to rise. For the rest of their days, the Israelite people are supposed to spend a week eating unleavened bread. That is a, a symbol of them, of the fact that they took their bread and left Egypt, even though it hadn't had time to rise. And that for the rest of their time as a people, that's going to be a symbol and a testimony to what the Lord did in saving them. Verse 21, Moses takes what the Lord said, and we're told that he called all the elders of Israel to him and said, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans, and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house and strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you as he has promised you, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say to them, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel and Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our homes. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so. As the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. You see, the blood of that lamb was supposed to act as a shield, if you will. Shields were used for protection. They were clung to and held on to as the means by which your life could be spared in the midst of a blow that would want to do otherwise. And thus the blood of the lamb on the doorpost was like a shield for the Israelite people from the coming blow of God's judgment. But the Egyptians have no such shield. And the text tells us that the people worshipped and were obedient. And just as righteousness was credited to Abraham back in Genesis on the basis of his faith, redemption, salvation comes to the Israelites on the basis of their faith. You see, all they have is the word of the Lord. Do this, and I will graciously save you. And so they place their faith in that. And they take their lambs, and the blood after slaughtering them, and they put it on their doorposts, and they stay inside the doorposts of their homes in that act of faith. And the gracious work of the Lord is what provides them salvation. A commentator on the book of Exodus says it this way, the obedience of placing the blood on the doorposts showed that a person believed God would keep his word and pass over them, sparing them from judgment. So Israel escaped judgment through this sacrifice, and salvation was accomplished by faith in a substitute. You see, the Lord is active in pursuing His purposes for His glory. That's why Joseph was sold into slavery. That's why he rose to a prominent 
position and was able to distribute food in the midst of the famine. That's why the Israelite people came to Egypt looking for food and were given land in which they could live. That is why they toiled away in slavery for years and their burdens and oppressions became harder and harder and harder. That is why God called Moses and that is why he does this. It is the perfect stage for his glory to be revealed and he's active in achieving it. And so verses 29 to 32 of chapter 12 tell the story of the 10th plague, that at midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up. Go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go and serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds and be gone. The Lord is powerful to save. So what does that mean for us? We've seen the plagues. We've seen the Passover. What does that mean in the present? First and foremost, we need to understand that it means that only the Lord is powerful to save. Until you're willing to name and see the shortcomings of all the things you worship instead of Him, you'll never turn away. We don't have images or temples that we set up in order to worship false gods. You can't walk down Liberty Drive and find yourself a temple to the Missouri River God. You won't likely walk around the square or walk down North Oak and find yourself a temple to the God of your garden. You see, we think we're too sophisticated for that. As postmodern people, we think that we've advanced beyond worshiping trivial things, and some feel like they've advanced beyond religion as a whole, but the truth is we worship something. It's just that we worship things more subtle than images and temples and places to false gods. We worship things like money, or family. We worship relationships and science and human reason. We worship politics and sex and happiness and career and success and love and power. But they can't save. The modern retelling or recreation of the story of the Exodus would involve the destruction of all of America's banks. That would be one of our ten plagues. It would involve the crumbling of the U.S.'s power as a world influencer and superpower, the disintegrating of our comfort and health. It would involve the taking apart of our society's desire to cling to human reason and the power of the individual. And all the while, there would be God standing next to it, shouting, I am, and those are not. I can save you, and those cannot. I will redeem my people, and those things will not. None of them can. None of them ever will. This happens to people in real life. You hear it all the time when you hear the testimony of a person who says, and then I hit rock bottom. And everything was gone. Everything that I thought was going to make me happy, everything that I thought was going to save me was removed, and I found myself at rock bottom. And you know what I found there? I found the Lord, and He was able to save. 
We said when we began the year that as we read through the Old Testament to look for Jesus in the midst of Genesis or Exodus or wherever we might be reading. And friends, there's not a clearer picture of the work that Jesus is going to do than this story right here. 1 Peter chapter 1 says that Jesus is our spotless Passover lamb. He was perfect and unblemished by sin. He came into the world for a short time and then He was slain on our behalf. Just as for the Israelite people, the faith in the blood of the Lamb on the doorpost was going to save them. Well, faith in the blood of the Lamb saves us from judgment for our sin. But we don't have to stand behind the doorposts of our homes and be afraid to step out. Instead, we can come and kneel humbly at the foot of the cross where the blood of the Lamb was poured out for us. And we can do so faithfully confident that God will do everything that He has promised, just as the Israelites needed to be faithfully confident that God would do everything that He had promised for them. You see, love and judgment mix perfectly at the cross. Your sin and its consequences are greater than you could possibly imagine, and yet God's love for humanity is greater than you could ever possibly imagine. The judgment necessary to pay the debt of our sin is something none of us could ever pay, and yet it's something that Jesus went to the cross to pay willingly, voluntarily, and joyfully. If you've placed your faith in Christ and His work on the cross, then His blood is your shield. His work on your behalf absorbs the blows of God's judgment that your sin deserves, and He was willing to do that for you. After the Israelites have fled from Egypt and they cross through a portion of the desert and they arrive at the Red Sea and God miraculously parts the Red Sea and they they run through there and the sea swallows up the Egyptian army, Moses stops and he sings this song to the Lord because he has just seen the Lord's salvation and it leads him to worship and the same should be true for us. So I just want to read a couple verses out of Exodus chapter 15. Verse 1 says, I will sing to the Lord for He has triumphed gloriously. Verse 2, The Lord is my strength and my song and He has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise Him, my Father's God, and I will exalt Him. Verse 11, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? The answer is no one. Nobody. Verse 13, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The people have heard and they tremble. Verse 18, the Lord will reign forever and ever. Seeing the salvation of the Lord should lead us to worship. Mark Dever says it this way, humans are not the ultimate purpose of creation. God's glory is. That is the message of the Exodus, that the Lord is greater. God works sovereignly to save humanity so that we would behold His greatness. He acted in time and space so we could see His power and worship His majesty. Moses and the Israelites saw God save them from slavery and it led them to worship His greatness and His majesty. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then you've seen God save you from the eternal consequences of sin and it should lead you to worship His majesty and His power. That is the application of this text. That's the application as we read this week, that we see the power of the Lord to save, and we just stand there and say, you are awesome, 
and I am in awe. I can do nothing to save myself. There's nothing on this earth that could possibly save me, but you are present in my circumstances, personal in a relationship, and powerful to save, and I will worship you because of it. And so that's how we're going to end our time together this morning. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up, and we're just going to spend our time singing the praises of the Lamb who was slain so that we might be saved. There's a sermon by a man named Elder Ward. He preached it in 1989, and in it, he made the following statement, that God did not attempt to bring you salvation. He accomplished salvation for you. What God does here in the story of the Exodus is not attempt to save the Israelites. He accomplishes salvation for the Israelites. And at the cross of Jesus Christ, God did not attempt to save us. He accomplished that salvation for us. And our response should be to worship Him. Let's stand and sing.